welcome to Series 2, Episode 1 of the Sophos Naked Security Podcast. We're back! Hooray! Yay! Yay! I'm Anna Brading and I'm here with Sophos experts Paul Ducklin. Hello! Mark Stuckley. Hi. And Matt Boddy. Hello! Can I just say glad I am that everyone else has got pop filters now and it's not just me. It doesn't it, make you feel It's a bit weird out. before. It's hiding all our faces now. <laughs> uh, floating around in the background, we also have Alice Duckett, our new podcast producer. Hi! She'll be chipping in every so often, I'm sure. Uh, coming up on today's show, Mark talks about how he turned into rough Santa, Duck talks about a logic bomb, and Matt tells us why he's been hanging around schools lately. What have you been up to in the three months that we've been away, guys? Three months. I've been mastering the... Well, I say mastering. I've been attempting to master the art of cooking sourdough bread. We've all seen on Twitter. I know Twitter. how excited you are about that, Anna. I can see the excitement in your face. It's just... I've heard a lot of stories about sourdough in the last couple of months. It's become very important to me. Yes. You're like, such a hipster now. He is. Where's your check shirt today? Where's your ponytail? Where's your mustache? No. <laughs> he once told me how many avocados he had in his fruit bowl. <laughs> As a boast. <laughs> it was like, I've got nine avocados. <laughs> I can imagine you down a bar trying to pick up women. <laughs> yeah. Do you know how many avocados I've got? So you bake bread, basically? Yes, proper bread. Proper bread done wow. the proper way. Doug, yeah. what have you been up to? Well, I wrote an app for my Garmin with a nice compass on it, and I even made a cool old school sort of digital font for my the speedo and the bearing and the time of day parts and i tried my garmin on a recent trip i went to amsterdam to give a talk and on the way back i put my garmin on on the plane to see because obviously on the bicycle you well you can test it up to several tens of kilometers an hour but you're never going to get to three digits and on the plane it successfully and my font handled it perfectly. I got to, I think, 578 kilometres per hour. Cool. Point something. Cycling is, really fast. Yeah, well, I, would, I, I did take a little video of it, hoping that I could convince people that I was riding. But unfortunately, Fake you, news. Could see the, you could see the tilted down tray table and the seat back in front of me. <laughs> so I think... <laughs> I got a super customised bike. <laughs> yeah, <there> were, <laughs> and the word Embraer. So, you, yeah, there were some giveaways that it might have been, uh, you know, assisted, engine assisted. So is this available on the App Store? What, on the Garmin App Store? Is there a Garmin it, App Store? Yes, there is. It's not called an App Store. I think that's reserved by Apple, but there is a Garmin app place where you can get third-party apps. It is not. It is not on there. Still has a couple of bugs in it. <laughs> that I haven't got out yet. <laughs> Matt, what have you been up to? What have I been up to? I bought a robot vacuum cleaner. Wow. Oh, goodness. I know. Did you see, have you, did you see the video that we posted yes. on Twitter yesterday? It was excellent. So the, there's two vacuum cleaners on two slightly different levels. And at night, somebody came down. No, in the morning, sorry, somebody came down and found that their two vacuum cleaners had ended up somehow on top of each other. He looked through a CCTV camera footage that he had on his living room. And he found that the two different levels at one point, they, they drove past each other and managed to just drive on top of each other. It's so one of, the, one of them is trying to sense where the edge of the, the upper level is, which they do by turning into the edge of the room and so they, they sort of poke poke they move a bit and then they test the edge they move a bit test the edge and just as it was testing the edge the other vacuum cleaner drove past and so there wasn't just for like a fraction of a second there was no edge and so it just carried on and then obviously there was an edge because it got to the edge of the vacuum cleaner and it stopped so they were perfectly arranged in a tower of vacuum cleaners Aww. it was beautiful wasn't so it so do they do these robot vacuum cleaners do they use sort of Parisian parking techniques. <laughs> you know, where you just you reverse, 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 bump, right, too far, go forward. I mean, so they don't, they don't actually know your room. They just basically blunder around it, crashing into things and then yeah. adapting slightly. Yeah. Go like, left, go left. Oh, too much, too much. <laughs> Matt, you've also been uh, talking about RDP a, a lot recently, haven't you? I talk about RDP all Did the time. Did you do some RDP days. research? Has some That's really research been done? You haven't happened to notice the new research paper online, have you? Wow. With mine what? and Mark's name on it this time. Oh, sophos.com slash RDP? sophos.com forward slash RDP. So should we just take 30 or 40 minutes just to briefly talk about the RDP research? I think that would be really interesting for Watch the video, listen to the podcast, read the report and uh, see read the article. Matt and Ben. Yeah, yeah so, so also not if you bump into me or Matt week. or Ben, you know, we'd be happy to talk to you about it. Well, and Matt we'll or Ben, talk you'll anyway. talk about sourdough. Well, yeah, obviously priorities. No, no, he, he, no, 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 no. He'll talk about RDP. Believe me. 
<laughs> Mark, you've also been busy uh, tweeting a lot from the Naked Security account. I did. I, I did some tweets about the IDP research. Uh, <laughs> also, there's, some, there's some fascinating charts. If you go and look at the Naked Security Twitter account, you'll see there's some uh, charts, the different kinds of attacks that we saw, uh, how quickly RDP servers can be discovered. If you, uh, that's not what you meant, is it? Absolutely not. But that's interesting. We can put it in the show notes. Yeah. So I've been trying to find out what the Naked Security audience thinks about some of the really important issues of the day. Yep. So uh, I asked, for example, what's the most dangerous thing you can attach to the internet? Because we just run a story about um, some Bluetooth. I can't believe people got that wrong, that answer. Because he came second, didn't he? Well, Elon Musk. Yeah. No, Elon Musk is officially the most dangerous thing you can attach to the internet. Oh, did he win in the end? He did, yes. He came at the top. Just snuck in at the last minute. Yeah, no, so we're, you know, that's good. Excellent. It's good showing oh, sorry. for the Naked Security didn't audience I mean to there. say that aloud. So Elon Musk is the <laughs> most Elon dangerous Musk thing. Elon Musk is officially the most dangerous thing you can attach to the wow. internet. Even more dangerous than cats, apparently. Hey, you leave cats alone. So we, I also asked, what's the most realistic movie depiction of how our robot overlords will eventually uh, take over? And that was before the Rumba video the video of the two vacuum obviously that would have won um worryingly although wally uh, the pixar film was uh, the winner uh, naked security audience thinks that the matrix is a more realistic depiction of the end of the world than war games wow yeah so a bit worried i've never seen war games it's a bad time to admit that no i've never seen anything yeah, I've you you not, would you like play? to yeah. would you like to step out and just go and watch it before you come back in and Do join in the rest the of the podcast I think you should. Yeah, you should okay. be ashamed of yourself. You did yeah. a whole pile of RDP research, or so I've heard, yeah. about password guessing. Yeah. And you haven't seen war games. It's true. I'm a disappointment to my mum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, although, remember, when, after you've watched it, you will realise you'll never get that 92 and a half minutes back. Yeah, so is you it might that want- bad? It's, it's so bad, it's good. I'm so confused. Do I watch it? I'm not watching it. <laughs> what else did you ask, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> I well, one of the other things I asked: What's the most grating sound in computing? Ah, so we offered four answers: the modem dial-up noise, because we were getting a bit retro; the Windows ninety-five startup sound, remember that; the MSN messenger ping, and uh, the loading from a cassette, which is my personal favourite. Anybody who remembers loading computer programs, particularly computer games from cassette tape. Anyone, I remember trying to load The Hobbit from cassette tape and it wouldn't work because there was a bug on like the 17th tape or something. So you just sit there listening to this terrifying noise for half a day and then the computer program would fail to load. It was, things were hard back then. It, could it, it be that the fact that you could hear the noise was part of the problem that you hadn't actually plugged it in properly so the speaker was still working so that's why it wouldn't load? Did you think of that? No, well, it, it, it worked for other things, but I was I was a bit disheartened because I was, obviously we were tweeting about all this stuff and I mentioned the Hobbit thing and somebody just replied and said, you do know you can turn the volume down, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if you could do an ASMR podcast entirely on those sounds. Yeah. I feel like I that would have the reverse effect. <laughs> That'd be really annoying. Fall asleep to the noise of a hard drive failing. I don't think the MSN messenger ping was annoying or grating. I think it was exciting because it meant your friends were online. You well, wouldn't understand, Mark. No. <laughs> so tell me again about these friends. <laughs> I meant about, you know, you went in messenger days. Were you? So I'll just bring in some honourable mentions actually as well, because we obviously, it's a poll, so we offered four answers and... Um, the modem dial-up noise was the winner but some of the other ones I liked so somebody mentioned the Skype startup sound which I absolutely agree with somebody else doesn't like the Apple Mac noise you know that bong that happens when you start your Mac yeah you know why I think people get annoyed by that because it does sometimes irritate me is that it doesn't it's a different setting because it, that's part of the pre-boot environment than sound on the Mac so you can have your Mac completely silent so nobody can hear you but if you have to reboot of course Macs never crash but if they were to and you had to reboot then it will make the noise even if you don't want it to that's the problem so if you were in a super never secret crash. squirrel spying situation and you were trying not to be discovered like you're hiding under the bed or something and then you have to reboot no, your Mac no if you're in a room of Windows users like in a meeting and your Mac makes that noise they all laugh at you because they realise it did crash because you know you never need to reboot a Mac so you have to run outside if you know it's going <laughs> to reboot so they can't hear it so in order not to draw attention to yourself you need to run outside with your Mac yeah because you've got 20 <laughs> reasons why you might run outside and obviously you're taking your Mac because, you know, you're sad. Okay, well, you everyone else has got 20 reasons and now you don't. So if I see you running out of a meeting with your Mac... Like it. 
Does anybody else want to volunteer a grating sound in computing? Does the sound that you imagine in your head when you see Clippy? <laughs> like the grating noise in your brain when you see that? Is that the sound of the laptop flying through the window and out into the car I've park? got a fondness for Clippy. That is possibly the third weirdest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> so you should definitely expand on that. Yeah, I don't, I don't want you to feel like you can just leave a comment like that. He's got a nice face, hasn't he? Got so what nice you're saying face. is you slightly fancy Clippy. <laughs> so you Absolutely find Clippy comfortable. When Clippy popped up, you found it comforting because you thought you were going to get sage and useful advice. Clippy was like, is like one of those really attractive people that you don't want to talk, you just want to look at them. Because I think he's got a cute face. I don't actually he's got weird. <laughs> did you, where did you stand on that waggy dog then that they had before Clippy? Oh yeah, I forgot about him. Yeah. I don't like dogs. Mark... <laughs> How can you not like dogs? <laughs> I like Clippy. I, I can understand like how you clips. don't like dogs, but actually, I don't think there's another person in the whole world who would say, yeah, I quite like Clippy. Found it useful. Great stuff. Alice liked Clippy. Alice liked Clippy. I think, I think we're in a room of five yeah. people and two, 40% of this... This we've got we're in a statistical anomaly zone, folks. We're like, <laughs> or have we? Let us know on Twitter. That could be the next poll. Yes. Yeah. Is Clippy annoying? Yes or no? Do we even need to poll yeah. that? Bonus. Well, I, I for... of course not. But forty percent <laughs> no, in a room this you. big. I'm amazed. I actually quite like Clippy too. <gasps> I, was, I was holding it back, but there's now <laughs> enough of the room. <laughs> when you said that series two was going to be different, I don't think anybody realised that it was going to be. <laughs> no like one this. expected this. <laughs> right, Mark. Have you uh, you've been playing about on FaceApp? Have you? I'm sorry. I'm still. I'm just <laughs> still trying to get over this Clippy situation. Talk to us it's a bit about. Of a shock. Talk to, to us about why you're rough centre. Oh, okay. All right. So I'm going to start with a question. Okay. Have you ever wondered what you'll look like when you're older? Uh, I feel like I can see it on my face now. Started to show <laughs> Mainly in the last hour of being in this room. <laughs> we should have done before and after photos. We should before have Before we recorded the podcast. It is like and it. after. Particularly for Alice. Hi, Alice. How are you doing? <laughs> well, it's like BC and AC, before Clippy and after Clippy. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually really really clever so anyway if you have ever Except wondered AD, I couldn't think of a D in time so if you I have ever wondered what, if you have ever wondered what you'll look like when you're older you don't have to wonder anymore thanks to an app called FaceApp which can show you now you've probably heard of FaceApp because it's been suddenly very very popular um, and it works like this. You feed it a photo and it basically dials your age up or down. So it doctors the photo to show you what you look like when you're a bit older or what you what it thinks you look like when you were younger. And there's some other filters as well, I think. Like there's there's one that makes you look a bit cooler. Didn't work on me. Um, and uh, like, I mean, this thing's just gone viral, but like lots of overnight sensations. It's actually been around a long time. So I think it was released about two years ago. It was released sometime in, in 2017. But all of a sudden it's gone viral. Um, so everybody's uploading uh, photos of themselves looking like old hags or ropey Santas. Um, and then some biz buzzkill has come along and gone and read the privacy policy. Like who oh, does that? Oh, God. Um, so in a nutshell, I'm not going to read the whole privacy policy here, but in a nutshell, it says we can use your photo and your username in any way we like forever and there's nothing you can do about it. And this has come as a shock uh, to some people. Um, so now there are twice as many viral posts as there were before because you've got the same number of people posting photos of themselves looking old or looking young, but you've now also got another cadre of people who are going around telling those people what the privacy policy says. And then seizing an opportunity... Using their real name... Probably on a social media <laughs> yeah, service a to which they've already granted an irrevocable right to use their posts forever and ever. Amen. It's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a fuss about nothing. The policy part. I mean, maybe you don't agree with the idea of this irrevocable right, but I suspect that in lots of social media uh, situations, you've already granted that right, whether it's a photograph or a post or an opinion or a video or a poll or whatever. Is that right? I Pretty think that's common. right. I think that's right. I think it's a really good point. I love the idea that these people are... You should have read the privacy policy on, on social media where they really should have read the privacy policy. Anyway, sensing an opportunity, US Senate House Minority Leader Chuck Schumer uh, waded in with a letter to the FBI and the FTC. And because it's 2019, obviously he did a tweet of the letter. 
He tweeted uh, big. He did. Yeah. Big. Big. I was hoping he would use huge if true, but oh. you know, just. <laughs> Um, anyway, so his tweet or his letter um, demands that the FBI and the FTC uh, look into the national security and privacy risks of FaceApp on the basis that millions of Americans have used it and it's a Russia-based company. Oh, so he's not so worried about the irrevocability. He's just saying, you know, we're suddenly uploading a whole load of personally identifiable information that could be used to I, figure people out and we're uploading it somewhere that we may not have realised where the stuff was going. He seems mostly worried about the Russia Part. Okay, so it's not the irrevocability, it's not the privacy policy, it's the fact that I think the stuff's going into another cloud in another Lots of people country. are worried about that, but he does seem particularly worried about the Russianness of the cloud that it's being uploaded into. Just before we get into it, I want to say that uh, Wireless Lab, who are said Russian company, have responded and said that FaceApp only uploads the photos selected by users. And like lots of these services, it uploads them because that's where it does its processing. So it's a bit like if you've got an Amazon Echo, you know, the voice recognition stuff. Uh, apart from recognising the command word, the voice recognition stuff actually happens in the cloud because you've got a bunch more computing power up there. So the actual, the the face mungification, if you like, happens in the cloud because it it requires the sort of computing power that takes place in the cloud. Uh, it says, so Wireless Lab says that it uh, usually de- deletes the images from its servers within 48 hours uh, and that it doesn't send user data to Russia but it processes images in US cloud providers' infrastructure, presumably because that's where all the big cloud providers are. So my question to you guys is, how worried should we be about FaceApp? Well, I've got a, I've got a strong opinion on that, that I suspect that maybe not a majority, but, but possibly a significant minority of the images that are getting uploaded aren't being uploaded by the person in the photo. Mm. They aren't being uploaded even with their consent. Maybe yeah. they've got their implied consent, but people are taking photos of of friends or family, people they know, or just celebrities or stuff that's on the web and uploading it because it's kind, it is kind of fun. Yeah. Someone uploaded a picture of me and I was very pleasantly surprised at how accurate the, the simulation seemed to be. I basically looked like my dad. Mm. So, you know, apart from giving me <laughs> confirmation of my parentage, I thought, <laughs> I thought, you know, that and that program's pretty good. But I figured, hang on, wait a minute, what's happened to my image? So I did, so for FaceApp, obviously they're saying we're only uploading what users choose to upload. What they carefully didn't say is we're, we're not, they can't say we're only processing images that the person in the photo chose to upload. And that's not a problem that's unique to FaceApp, is it? It's a problem. Well, I think that, that's the key point. That's the key point for me. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I find it personally, I find it very interesting where the, these sort of viral sensations take hold. So this thing's been washing around for a couple of years yeah. and then all of a sudden, it, it picks up and it becomes an exemplar of something because there's too much stuff going on for people to sort of think in general terms. It's much more, it's much easier for people to think about specific things. And what you're saying is there may be a problem with FaceApp, but the, the problem with FaceApp is not unique to FaceApp. It's not a FaceApp problem. It's a problem with uh, people taking photographs or using photographs of other people without their permission uh, or using data belonging to other people without their permission. And and also, I think, as you said earlier, you know, with the privacy policy, this kind of privacy policy, I, I wish it was unusual. I wish that we could say that FaceApp stands out for having a particularly weird and, and sort of dr- draconian privacy policy, yeah. but I don't think it does at all, I think. No, and you could understand why the provider of a service like this or a Facebook or a Twitter or an Instagrammer or a, in the old days a MySpace or whoever it was would have a proviso like that because they don't want to get into some kind of unnecessary, needless legal trouble in five years' time when somehow their right to keep having this photo on their site suddenly evaporates and they have to spend all this time trying to tidy up. So they're saying, okay, if you want to use our service and it's free, then you kind of upload the picture and then it's still your picture, but we're allowed to use it. It kind of seems like a not unreasonable quid pro quo, but it's almost as though this is it's somewhat reminiscent of the Momo challenge, isn't it? Or the freak out or the, the talking Angela thing. Yeah. The Momo challenge was this scary statue that existed for years and suddenly it was going to 
caused all our children to do terrible things to themselves. Yeah. And Talking Angela was one of a whole range of Android and iOS games that had been out for, what, years? And suddenly we were all going to be at risk of paedophiles because of, of some made-up stuff about the app. Yeah, I, I think the mistake that people make about these things is that they, they, they look at that. So any one of those examples that you've given, I think Talking Angela was sort of bubbling. We saw it, it was... Uh, we wrote an article about it, and it was it was reasonably popular for for a year, and then all of a sudden it just yeah. it went crazy, and the the hoax around it had evolved slightly. It had become uh, slightly more preposterous, but a lot catchier, and then and then suddenly it catches on. And I think the mistake that people make is they attach some significance to the thing that goes viral. So, okay, because FaceApp is suddenly popular, there must be something about FaceApp that's different from everything else. And I think it's much more of a case of you've got a whole bunch of stuff that's essentially the same in nature, in the way that it works, in its privacy policy. And one of them is going to go viral. One of them is going to catch on, but there isn't necessarily any significance to the one that does catch on. So if it hadn't been Talking Angela, it would have been something else. If it hadn't been the Momo Challenge, it would be something else. And indeed, it was something else before the Momo Challenge. And if it hadn't been Facebook, it, it would have been something else. Maybe one of the things that made that somehow freaks people out more about a service like FaceApp is the sort of what you might call the bi-directional nature of it. You know, think of something like Facebook. You take a picture of yours, you share it, other people see it. Maybe they remix it, maybe they pass it on. But the whole idea with FaceApp is you upload one thing, you upload one photo, and then you get back another photo, mm. which is kind of eerily accurate, yeah. but yet is completely fake. So maybe it's also tapping into that whole deep fake fear about, well, this is a photo of what I'm supposed to look like, like when I'm older. But what happens if I don't? What happens if I look completely different? But there's this image that then people can say, oh, well, which is the real Paul Ducklin or whatever. So there is something slightly potentially creepier about it in that it's guessing what you look like and then presenting that image and they presumably get to keep that image as I, well. I wonder as well if actually there isn't something in... It's very obvious where the technology is in something like FaceApp. If you look like, you know, something like Facebook is a very, very sophisticated piece of software. It's got tens of thousands of people working on it. Yeah. But the sophistication is all geared towards getting you not to leave. So it's not necessarily obvious. It's not showing you how clever it is. Its cleverness is borne out by the fact that you carry on using it, whereas something like FaceApp is its entire purpose is showing you, look how clever I am, look what I've done, look, I'm much better at doing this. So maybe it's just more obvious that you're actually, that you're in the more of some fairly scary technology. It's, it knows enough about you to show you what you're going to look like when you're old. I suppose there is a silver lining, perhaps, in all of this, that if it does get us to stop, think, connect, if it does get us more aware of the idea of, you know, be aware before you share or if in doubt, don't give it out, then maybe that will be a benefit because that's something that you can apply to every everything you do with your own and your friend's information, whether it's photos, your location, your birthday, your mother's maiden name, your address, where you're going on vacation, all of that stuff. So maybe, maybe people won't be afraid of this kind of app, but it will make them a little bit more circumspect about just blindly uploading anything anywhere, anytime, because everyone else is doing it. Mark, you should explain why you're rough Santa, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, for experimental purposes, uh, we did use FaceApp in the office. You know, it's important to understand what these things do. So we did uh, some scientific uh, photography. Absolutely. Uh, just to see how accurate it would be, what we would look like. And it turns out I look like uh, rough Santa. Our, our intern, Harry, said you look like rough Santa. Yeah. Yeah. Doc, you're going to talk to us about logic bombs this week. I am. What are logic bombs? Well, a logic bomb, basically, there's this idea, isn't a logic bomb just malware? And the, the answer to that is that all logic bombs are malware, but not all malware um, items are logic bombs. Basically, it's something you stick in a program. It may be a legitimate app. It may be something you've developed for something else that waits for a specific, unusual, typically unusual situation to occur. Like in the old days, there were viruses that they spread like crazy. But if day equals Friday and date equals 13, then delete files. 
And the idea is it's waiting for a particular logic condition, an if-then-else, if-then-else, if-then-else in a program to come true, and then it does something like a bomb. It does something destructive. And um, it was much in the news this week because uh, a chap by the name of David Tinley, very sadly, he was a long-term contractor for for Siemens in Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania, and he wrote spreadsheets to help them with their office automation, their workflow, and he password protected the code in the spreadsheets. That's not unusual, but suspiciously... Do you not think that's a bit of a red flag? No, it's quite usual to have password protected stuff. It stops then when when users open the spreadsheet, it stops them messing with it and fiddling with formulas. You know, so if everyone could go in and change the exchange rates that do in your expense calculations, then you know it would just be an unnecessary complication. So I don't think it's I don't think that's a bad idea. It's just to stop fiddling. But the suspicious thing was he would never share the password with anybody, and it turned out that what he had he had a if date equals x then cause trouble and what would happen is the trouble would be sufficient that the 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 off the people would call him back in to help fix it and in fact he would magically fix the problem but all he'd do is go into his program put in the password apparently allegedly and uh, change push the date forward a few months so it was kind of like a way of making sure that he retained his value and they they'd call him in and every time he came in hey magically fix the problem but it seems that it was actually a problem uh, uh, this logic bomb that he deliberately placed in the spreadsheets, if you like, not to generate work, not like ransomware to demand money, but just to give him a reason to make sure that they kept calling upon him. And unfortunately, he was caught out and um, he's now pleaded guilty. He hasn't been sentenced yet, but it's a very sad tale. You know, he was coming towards the end of his career. He'd worked for them for something like 14 years, but it turned out he was a bit of a rotter in the way he went about getting his continuing business. So how business. did they catch him if he was password protecting the code? Well, if you've ever worked for a big company or a government body, for example, where you get lots of leave and you've wondered why some organisations have a rule that if you get, say, four weeks of vacation leave a year, you have to take two weeks contiguously and they can insist on that in your contract. Apparently, one of the reasons that a lot of public service bodies have that kind of rule is if you're running a scam... It's very likely to come unraveled if you have to take more than a day or two of leave because any fellow conspirators won't be able to continue without you and it may come out in the wash. And apparently that's what happened. He was away. The problem happened. He was forced to come up with a password because he had no excuse to withhold it anymore. Presumably he hoped they'd go in and fix the problem and it wasn't down to his logic bomb. But of course, they did what's called a code review. They're looking for bugs in the code. When you're looking for bugs, you tend to find bugs that you didn't expect, like other bugs, and they spotted this stuff and that's how he came unraveled. So a code review that is something that should have been done beforehand, even if you trust the guy completely, it's good to have a second eye of code pair of eyes on the code just in case someone's made an obvious mistake that can easily be fixed and that's how he got busted so so what would your advice be then to people so it would be code review what else well mark was the chap who wrote up the article on naked security about this you can go and read the the sad story and mark's got some great advice in there but the key thing is that if you've got somebody who you think you can trust as a programmer and you may trust them or you may think they're valuable because they write great code. There are lots of, you know, the fact that someone is a brilliant programmer and is able to produce stuff fast, that's effective, that works well for you, that saves you money, that helps you develop your business. It doesn't mean that they're not rotters. And in this case, they should have, Mark, you would agree with this because you wrote in the first place, of course, there should have been a red flag that he systematically refused to share the password to his code. You know, that's very suspicious, isn't well, it? Well, I, I, what I was trying to say in the article actually is that that should have, that should be a red flag, either for the company or for the contractor. It's a, it's kind of a two way street. So if a contractor is refusing to hand over the password or refusing to share their work when you think that they should, then if you're the company involved, then perhaps contractually you should have made that an obligation rather than a choice. And also, you may be wondering, okay, why are they not doing that? But you might also ask yourself, why don't they trust me enough to hand over that stuff? So is there is there something in the relationship that's unevenly tilted towards the company and against the contractor that makes the contractor feel that they have to 
kind of over egg the pudding to protect themselves because now, these can these can be quite asymmetric relationships yeah my understanding is that is that uh, according to a report i read about this that his lawyer argued that well the reason he put this stuff in there and the reason it was all password protected is that this was his intellectual property that he'd been contracted to write the code but they hadn't actually bought the code off him so it was an ongoing relationship. So you can understand that if he gave them the password, then they could copy his code, change it, and then they might just suddenly find they didn't need him anymore, which, whilst that's a very unhealthily untrusting relationship, I would say, there are ways around that where you could get some third party that has the password that can do the review for you so that if he suddenly throws his toys out and says, I'm not working with you anymore as the person who's bought the code off him, you pre- presume you'd want something in the contract that protected you in the case that he walked away. So something that determines, you know, what happens when the product reaches its end of life, what happens if you're no longer willing to work on the source code. You know, it didn't, it didn't feel like a particularly healthy relationship, but I suppose they never had reason to suspect because every time there was a little problem, even though it seems it was of his making, he'd rush in and it was easily fixed. Yeah, that's what programmers do, isn't it? They, they fix stuff. Yeah. And he was, he was smart enough or devious enough not to pack all the problems in at the beginning and just sort of prolong the development process, which would have just made him look bad. Would, it, would you not agree that actually it kind of works the other way around as well, that if you're a contractor and, you, and you're, the person you're writing the code for isn't asking these questions, isn't concerned about code reviews, just blindly ready to trust you, that you probably want to convince them that it's in their interests and in your interests that they don't just blindly take everything you do independently and bung it into production. It seems as though if I was in his position, I'd want them to have the password. I'd want them to be able to fix the code if I weren't there. Otherwise, if ever it happened that say I'd got sick or I'd had a car accident and I couldn't come in that day and all hell broke loose, it wouldn't reflect very well on me if the system was then so locked down that nobody could fix it. So I think I'd rather be in a relationship where I felt it was that it was a team effort rather than they were relying so heavily on me that they stood or, worse, failed um, on something that I'd done. You know, my, my attitude to this stuff is that uh, having managed programmers and been a programmer, everybody benefits from working with somebody else, whether it's formal code reviews or kind of informal code review, like pair programming, something like that, where you've got two pairs of eyes on the code at the same time, that even brilliant programmers uh, can set off in a direction that's slightly divergent from maybe the priorities of the organisation they're working for. And there doesn't have to be much of a difference, but if they carry on on that journey for a couple of years, you can end up in quite a different place than you should be. So, and a very easy way of dealing with that is just to have somebody else looking at the code. So I think there are all these really good reasons, other than the fear of logic bombs, that you should have peer review. Um, And I think kind of the rest of the modern development process would probably help uncover stuff like this. So modern development is all about continuous test and build. It's about, you know making small commits and highlighting, okay, well, you know, let's say Matt's just made a commit and that commit broke the system. You want to catch that stuff as as early as possible for the health of the code base and so you can do rapid development. And I think all of that stuff, if you put that in place, there are great reasons for doing all of those things. And one of the side effects of doing that is that you're, I think, much more likely to catch this sort of devious behaviour. But there has to be... At, the, at some point, there has got to be a lot of trust because I was going to ask the other people um, in the studio, like we all work in sort of knowledge base, in a knowledge base environment, maybe not all with code, but we will all find ourselves in situations where we could we could probably get away with doing something devious. You know, we could engineer more work for ourselves by making sure a project doesn't finish on time or something like that. And by and large, my guess is that actually that isn't what motivates people yeah. when i when i speak to um when i speak to some sort of s- uh, security and chief security of- information officers every so often the best people that i speak to are always the people that are saying i'm trying to make myself and my team redundant the people that are trying to automate mm. everything that they're yeah. doing and get to the point where their team has so much time on their hands so that they can focus on other stuff and i i think focusing on that in whatever line of work you're in is in making your yourself and your team and so efficient that you don't 
you're not really required to do that individual job that you're currently doing at the moment is, is, is really good practice. I actually worked for somebody who said that to me once. They said, if you can make your job redundant, I will find you another job. If you're that good, mm-hmm. I will never let you go. I will find you another job to do. Did was you manage it? wasn't it? you, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> so how are we going to automate the podcast? How are we going to automate Mark's AI contributions to AI. Twitter? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. AI again. Matt. Yeah. Uh, what have you been doing in schools lately? What have I been doing in schools lately? That is... Can I just say, I think it's really great that you've, you know, it's never too late, is it, Matt? No. It's never, it's never too, too late. late. We're proud of you. Go back, finish those exams, finish those studies, <laughs> get that GCSE. You can do it, Matt. We're all, we're really proud of you. I can do it. Bump up that grade. Yeah. Eighth well, time. So I've not been repeating my GCSEs, much to your disappointment. Oh. Yeah. Instead, I went there recently with Alice, the producer. Oh. Hey, Alice. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, hey. Um, Is that what you said in the schools, Alice? Yeah, I did. Yeah. As an aside, hey is one thing, but what did Mark say when he turned up this morning at the office? Does someone want to repeat it or is it is groovy? That... <laughs> Mark actually, said he was actually, feeling groovy. That is what you said it on the entrance to the podcast. He did. And I thought you were doing it as like a, a, a subtle reference to when Mark said groovy when he entered the office. This oh, I think it's it's been adopted into. I think the word subtle is very kind of you to say that. <laughs> I think this is this is just what happens when you've been around sourdough too much. I think the fumes don't. Kind yeah, of affect you've you. become a hippie. Yeah. yeah, a hippie. Did I mention than a that we've been doing some RDP research, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> I Have bet you, done you, some I bet you not one of the kids at the school said the word groovy at any time. Talk to us about the school. That's true. Talk to you about the school. Okay, so what happened in the school when I went there? I went there to tell the children and also their parents about how that they can stay safe online. I said that in a weird way then. No, I'm I enjoyed gonna, it. I'm going to roll good. with it. All yeah. right. So it was really interesting, actually, because I came out of, came out of it learning a lot from from the parents and from the kids and I didn't really have an answer for them and I think it's going to be a quite an interesting thing to talk about and it's going to be some interesting discussion we'll get back from people online to see what they do because the parents had a had a bigger and a different problem than what I thought they'd have so when I kind of went in there to talk to the parents about how they can help keep their kids safe online I went there with a structure with some powerpoint presentations showing them how they can implement some sort of security control on iOS and Android because I don't think kids necessarily walk around these days with a laptop uh, tapping away on a laptop doing anything it's normally an iPad or an iPhone or a Android device that they'll be laptop has gone the way of a gramophone my friend it has hasn't it yeah. it has it's used in business but not necessarily at the, in the home so um so, 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 what what I showed them was, yeah, firstly, how you stop people, stop your kids browsing to certain websites. You can just block outright block pornographic websites, for instance, on a mobile device. And um, and I think they were interested in that. You can also password protect it so that they can only access it at certain times. You can, I also showed them how they can block certain apps on the phone. So if you don't like an app that your kid's using, you can uh, block it. You can also password protect it, so you can make them type in a PIN to be able to access that app. But what they were asking me about wasn't about how you protect those apps or how you stop them going onto the apps. It's actually how you control them within the app. So apps like Snapchat, for instance, apps like Instagram, they want to be able to. They wanted to be able to control who was able to reach out to them, who was able to talk to them, who they were accepting friend requests from, who they were messaging because they were really scared about the fact that actually quite often now their kids had this attitude where if somebody attempted to add them on Instagram, for instance, or follow them on Instagram, the attitude is towards gaining as many followers as possible. Now, now I know Instagram is trying to action this by changing um, the quality of likes, for instance, that you get. So instead of showing you the quantity of likes that you're getting, I've got 500 likes for this picture, it's showing you the quality to say, um, so-and-so like this picture, Matt liked your picture, and it's more focusing on the fact that they're friends and family and people close to you. How old were the kids in the, that you were talking to? It was a secondary school. So so they were ranging from, I don't know the ages of kids at 11 to 16? 11 think, to yeah. 16. There you go. <laughs> um, so so they, they, could, they were all the way... From, so at that age from 11 to 16, it is the time where you start getting interested in, in boys or girls <laughs> or, and, uh, and you start to, start to use social media to, to kind of self-promote. 
And yeah, it's also the age where you really kind of loosen the shackles with your parents a bit. I think. Yeah, yeah. So with yeah. the younger kids, it's much easier just to say no, not at all. You're too young for that. Um, but obviously, that's that's that really difficult age where you're, you know, sixteen. You're you're basically an adult with no experience, yeah. aren't you? Yeah. So the parents actually more worried about what in the old days would have, and maybe something that they're still worried about today, who are their kids hanging out with online? And I guess something that's much harder to control in an online sense than it is in real life is what kind of imposters and weirdos are they hanging out with who might put them in harm's way? Yeah, because it's not like they're going down the local park and playing down the local park or something. I thought you were going to say pub. Yeah, yeah like down the local pub or whatever. I it's not like they're going down 16. somewhere local and, and there's somebody approaching them in the park. It's the internet where it's got yeah. everyone. Um, and yeah. and you can see why they're concerned because actually their kids did have an aptitude to just accept that follower's request, even if their profiles were private. Now, a lot of their profiles weren't private because they wanted to get as many likes as possible, but they were only ranging from 12 to 16, like you said. So, so the so first thing, private doesn't private almost. A, we've discussed this before that it's almost a misnomer in that context. Say in Instagram, isn't it? If you make your account, your profile private, it just means you get to choose who you you accept as a follower from then on. But it doesn't somehow control what those followers choose to do with the data you share with them. And if you're just accepting anyone. Anyway, yeah, it doesn't just, make, yeah. make any difference. It, ju- it just means you, you might be inclined to block some people that you know you don't like, but it doesn't help protect you necessarily against the, the what do you call them, the, the unknown unknowns. Yeah, precisely. Because, because that apparently their kid, they're saying that their kids would accept a friend request from somebody that's at another local school, even if they've never met that person before, just because they saw that other local school in their name and they thought, oh, I've heard of this person's name or I've heard of this school's name and they look like a cool person. Mm. So you figure from the photo, it's obviously a school kid. Maybe it's even a hacked account. Yeah. But you have actually no idea whether it really is that person. All you have is a photo and the claim that they're at such and such a school. Precisely. So were you able to offer them any advice on that? What was your... I had to say I had to say I don't know because I don't I, there's there's all I could say was firstly make sure that you are uh, you um restrict the access so that the account is private what the teachers were recommended that they do was was the, the difficulty is is the age range the teachers were recommending that the kids were would kind of um that the parents would step in and monitor the account access yeah. and also have the password to any social media I I mean I don't have kids uh, I'd feel pretty invaded if that happened to me but I don't know. I don't know if that's okay or not. I, I'm not. I'm obviously not and the also, one to say. Age eleven is very different to age sixteen. Yeah, perhaps that's okay at age eleven, yeah. twelve, thirteen. But but maybe I think when you turn sort of, I think uh, when you're a bit older, it starts when you start to feel like your privacy is being invaded by your parents. So it's yeah. probably I, this is not an answer to that problem, but I think it's worth mentioning at this point that most of these services have an age, a minimum age limit. So if there are any parents listening, I think Instagram and Facebook both have a minimum age limit of 13. Yeah. So you're not supposed to have, according to Facebook and its terms and conditions, you're not supposed to have a Facebook account or an Instagram account until you're 13. I think so, that's the case for any anything yeah. based in the US. I don't know whether it's a federal law or just a general agreement that that's the kind of age you can start having your own online account. Yeah. But it seems to be the... That seems to be the starting point. So if so, you're 11, you just sh- shouldn't actually have a Facebook account or well, an Instagram What I think account. would be really interesting, and I, if there are any listeners who fall into this demographic, I'd love to hear from you. But I'd like to hear, we're at the point now where there's a generation of kids who've just passed through this. You know, they, these things have been around just long enough that there are people who are kind of hitting their early 20s now who will have been teenagers with access to Instagram and Snapchat and things like this. And I want to know from them what they think would have worked. Because I'm I'm at the other end of this. I've got kids who are under 10 and I am trying to work out what I should be doing now to make those sorts of conversations easier. And I think the really hard part, the bad news for parents on this the kind of tough love, if you like, is that one of the big problems we see in corporate IT is an idea that all problems caused by technology can be solved by technology. And I think it's one of the attitudes that plagues IT teams or the things that people ask of IT teams, that technology can create 
cultural and social problems which it can't necessarily answer. And I think this is one of those situations. There's a point at which there are no more switches you can turn on. There are no more switches that can be invented for you to turn on that help your kids exercise good judgment. And there's a point at which you have to hand over the exercising of good judgment that you no longer do it for them. They have to do it for themselves. And I think ideally you want to be handing it over to them in a very, very fuzzy way over a long period of time that there isn't some, there isn't a point where they leave home and you go, well, I've protected you as much as I can and I made all these decisions for you on social media and now it's up to you. I hope you make the same choices I did. Um, what I'm trying to do with my kids is, um, so one of my kids is very into Minecraft and so uh, about a year and a half ago, we had to make a decision about whether we were going to let them use public Minecraft servers. And I did a little bit of looking around and decided in the end that I wasn't going to allow it. But I didn't just say, no, you can't do that. I sat down with them and I said, the problem with public Minecraft servers is it's full of these people that we don't know. And most of them will be perfectly nice and normal people but there are some very very bad people out there on the internet and it's very difficult to tell them apart from everybody else and i can't find a way for you to be on these minecraft servers safely and therefore right now we're not going to allow it because they're not old enough to exercise a good judgment and i would have to be sat with them the whole time and there are some things that we do do that so email for example um one of my kids has got access to email it's very very control they're only allowed to email other people in their class but they have to do their email in the same room as one of the adults in the family for example and my hope is that we're going to build up really slowly this idea that look there are this small group of very unsavory very untrustworthy people out there so that when they're 13 and we're talking about the same thing it's not some new idea it's not like some parental attempt to control their burgeoning uh you know, social adventures, it's a consistent story going back six, seven years saying, look, you know, we've talked about this. We know this is a problem. I've got no idea if this is going to work, but that's, that's where I'm going with this stuff. But isn't it a bit like stranger danger? Like we, we had to, we were taught not to talk to people with, not to accept, not to go into a van with someone that said they had puppies and kittens for you to go and look at. It's the same, isn't it? It's just online. Well, I think the difference is with the stranger danger, it was... It's a bit like the face app stuff. You know, the wrong lesson to take away from the stranger danger is if someone's got a van and they're offering you sweets or puppies, yeah. don't go with them. Yeah, it's much more, okay, this person's not your parent and they're not the parent of one of your friends. You don't know enough about them to, to go with them. Like it's that, the other end of the scale. It's also the, it's very clear cut, isn't it? It's also yeah. very unlikely to happen. So it's exceptional enough that you, even as a kid, you can kind of pick out this is this isn't supposed to happen. Yeah. Whereas getting you know so called friend requests from people that even if you accept them as a friend, you'll never meet yeah. them. So they'll never be a friend in the traditional sense. It is much harder. And I think there, there's no, a, that's literally how the platform works. Isn't yeah. It? Getting a friend request is what is supposed to happen on the platform. Yeah. And. You know, you can imagine that there's uh, Matt that there must be a, a, a sort of concomitant problem for parents that if they've got a young child, say some say son or daughter of fourteen, fifteen, or whatever, who comes to them and actually asks for help, saying, "Look, there are these people on Instagram, and they want the you know I, I let them be friends, and this is what they're doing. How do I judge whether they're good?" bad, indifferent, evil or whatever, that actually even if kids reach out to their parents for advice, parents themselves may not have the skills to make that judgment because, you know, if you look at how many scams cyber crooks are able yeah. to pull off against yeah. adults where an informed person looks and goes, crikey, you should have known. Phishing, for example. Yeah. You kind of think it, it, I, if I were a parent of kids that old, I would be worried about if they came for me to, for advice in good faith, would I back myself to give the right answer short of just saying, no, put your shields up all the time, recognising that actually social media can be fun, it can be useful, it can help you meet new people, it can help you learn stuff, learn things about other societies, other cultures, have a load of fun. So I guess that that's the flip side, isn't it? That if you're supervising your kids on social media, you don't necessarily know all the answers. 
Yeah. Whereas, you know, when it comes to stranger danger with a weird guy in a car with puppies, I, I think most, most adults would back themselves to notice that the person, that that's not a good thing. But is 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 the reason that we are noticing stranger danger in the van because we've been conditioned to, to yeah. know what they look like? Is there a way of teaching that? I don't know. I think I think this is a good point though. We've all we've all had quite different but good suggestions about what we could do, and I think it's a community based problem. And perhaps the Sophos or the Naked Security community would also have some decent suggestions. Perhaps there's something that people at home, people that are listening to the podcast are doing with their own children as well, just like Mark is, that that is actually a really good solution to this problem that that obviously everyone's having. And perhaps if you can comment or post or share what you've what you've experienced and how how you've fixed that problem for yourselves, then perhaps that will help lots of other people in fixing the problem for themselves. Yeah. The uh, the only other suggestion I can think of that I've I've seen that I think resonated with me on this was the idea that um, with teenagers, you know, if if your teenagers want to be on a social network, then one of the conditions of them being on that social network is that they have to friend or follow or whatever the networking component is with one of the parents or yeah. both parents. But I, but I don't know if that makes a difference, does it? On that Instagram, still won't stop them. It was, on Instagram, no. you can see who your followers are following and you can see who they've, what posts they've commented on. You can't see the direct messages or the personal messages, but perhaps that is a way of monitoring if they've started being following by a load of weirdos. You, I, I think it's obvious. a way of involving the parent and I think also it's it's a bit like with the code review on the logic bomb that doing a code review isn't necessarily going to find the logic bombs but the, the, the if you know if you know that your work is going to be under scrutiny that that might change your behavior if you're on a social network and you're on there with your parents even if they can't see specific friend requests, they might be able to get a sense of your general behaviour. But isn't the whole point of being a teenager that you just find ways around it? I mean, that's what I was doing as a teenager. I wasn't, you know, I, I could, you could have easily have friended your parents and then, and then you just find a way around it. I mean, I don't, So, maybe. So that's an interesting, so you've got another perspective on this, which is the perspective of a mother. So you're kind of saying, well, teenagers will just find a way around it. Are you saying then that you should allow them to explore that without trying to involve yourself in some way. I think we have very different parenting attitudes, Mark. <laughs> but Mark um, I don't that- know. I'm, I'm glad he's a toddler because yeah. I'm, I'm waiting to... You, you tell me what you did. And, and then you do the works. opposite, yeah. Well, just if it works, I'll do it. Uh, but do you think that is practicable to say well you have to you have to invite me along and then what are you going to do keep track of absolutely every no no it's not about keeping track about absolutely everything it is about so i come back to this idea that some technology problems have got social and cultural solutions and being a parent is a kind of weird difficult fuzzy that like you learn as you go you're constantly receiving feedback about how good or how bad you are as a parent from your kids and you're missing things and you don't realise it, it doesn't suddenly become this perfect binary process when they're involved with computers. It continues to be this messy thing that you're kind of mostly screwing up and somewhat getting right. And I think that just carries on. And so you, in the same way as if your kids were going off to the park, you would be you'd want to know, okay, well, how long have they been at the park? And maybe you want to ask them, okay, well, what did they do? Yeah. You know, you can get a sense of just just from what time they come home, you can get a sense of what sort of thing they might be up to. And I think it's more like that. You know, if you've got a kid and they've got thousands and thousands and thousands of friends on a social network, then they've got a very different attitude than another child who's got tens of friends on a social network. And that might that might just be enough of a clue to make you want to have a conversation with them. So if anyone's got any uh, feedback that they can give us about what they're doing, that would be really useful to hear. So let us know on social media or let us know on Naked Security comment section and we can pick this up next time. Um, Now, finally, I've got some questions. We asked uh, people on Twitter if they had any questions for us on the podcast. Who's ready for them? Are any of them them really awkward questions from anonymous people about... um, what to do if they're slightly attracted to 
animated paper clips. <laughs> Anonymous. Anonymous writes. <laughs> no. Is no. it normal? Stop it. No. <laughs> to love Clippy. <laughs> Just to clarify, I said fond of. I did not say love. <laughs> okay. Tor Eric has asked has said, you say that passwords can't be the same as each other. When you need to make sense of when you need to make lots of passwords, how can you keep things secure? Password manager. Password manager. Yeah. I'm going to say something controversial now. Oh, okay. Write them down. Not use a password manager. Well. Do both. Use a password manager if you think you can manage it. Okay. I saw some stats. I think it was this morning. um, Somebody's released some stats about password manager usage. And amongst people that understand what they are and why they should use them, password manager usage is minuscule. And amongst the general population, is absolutely vanishingly small. And I think, actually, I think it's great advice to use a password manager, but at the very least, have a way of storing your passwords. And that way might be writing them down. If you can keep that book of passwords uh, secret or, you know, safe... I've been very careful about... I I, I don't agree with that advice because I think the average person that isn't prepared to try... Uh, a password manager or to look into how they work and what they can do for you, remembering that they generate complex passwords and they're pretty much guaranteed to be different every time. The problem with the giant book of passwords is A, most people will want to carry it around with them where it will easily be lost and B, you're still leaving it up to the user to choose a password. So you can write down your passwords but they can still be your cat's name followed by FB for Facebook, your cat's name followed by TW for Twitter. And then over time, you'll get to remember them. Then you can leave the book of passwords at home. So I would encourage people to look at and try a password manager first if they're struggling with passwords, not to write them down, simply because it means you will get passwords that match all those weird rules about funny characters and capital letters and make sure that they're significantly different each time. And they also have the great benefit because they match your password to a particular website generally. It stops you seeing a phishing page, a fake website, going to your little book and carefully typing in the complicated so, password in so the wrong I, site. I absolutely agree with you that the best thing that you can do is to use a password manager. And I hope everybody who's listening to this who doesn't have a password manager goes out and gets one and starts using it. What I'm saying is, I don't think they will. I don't well, think the message it. is getting through. Try it. You should absolutely try it. Okay, um, Richard asks, do you folks really think DNS encryption would stop ISPs snooping on what sites a customer visits? It seems to me it would just make it more difficult. Well, it depends where your DNS resolver is. So what happens with a DNS request is your computer sends out a, a request to turn an IP address into a domain name and that request goes to a DNS resolver. The request is sent in clear text, so anything that that request passes through can read the request on the way, and then it ends at a resolver, and the resolver obviously has to read it because they've got to answer the question. So if the resolver is with the ISP, then encrypting the traffic doesn't make any difference because you're basically telling the ISP and asking it a question. So absolutely it can spy on you there. If your resolver is different from the ISP, then there is no way for your ISP to break that encryption and it cannot see your DNS requests. Final question from Dan, 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 Dan on uh, Instagram. Um, it was a- you, is that his actual name <laughs> or were you just very, very happy about his name? I was still thinking dun, about Clippy. Uh, it was. It is D A A A N. Uh, presumably, he's talking about the Face Face app. Um, app. Presumably, this permission can be revoked under GDPR. Matt, is that a question for you, GDPR guy? Do am I the GDPR guy? Well, that's what I've called you. Okay. Uh, yeah, you could request to have your data revoked from Face App if you wanted to. It's definitely the sort of thing GDPR is there for, protect you from your stuff being stored by people that you don't want to store your information. Could you do it with photos? Because we get, we get GDPR requests about email addresses and people's details, but could you, could you just upload a picture of your face and just say, I want my face removed from... I think you can ask somebody under GDPR to remove anything they hold on you under the right to be forgotten. But how would they know? Well, it's under they wouldn't. Username. 
they wouldn't. So I think that it's it's important not to not to confuse the idea of this irrevocable right that you get. It means you upload the thing and then they can use it for as long as they've got it and you can't add conditions and say, oh, we can use it on Tuesday but not on Thursday. So yeah. that, that way they don't have to keep asking you. My understanding is, and I'm not a lawyer, if under GDPR and they feel they have to comply, that you say, I want you to get rid of all the data you hold, tell me what you hold on me and get rid of it, then they're obliged to do so. Yeah. And of course, they're irrevocable right would effectively end because they wouldn't actually have the photo to use. So as long as they've got it, they can kind of use it and they don't have to ask you every time. That's the important part. Um, as to how do you know whether they actually admitted what they held on you and how do you know whether they've deleted it? Well, the answer is, I guess, that's for the regulator to find out if mm. any questions come up later. Yep. That's, that's our episode one done this week. How do you feel? Does everyone well, feel exhausted? It all feels so lovely and new still. Does it? Is yep. it because of your pop filter? I am enjoying my pop filter. Um, but you're enjoying our pop filter I am enjoying, more. I'm enjoying the way that Matt looks like he's being pressed up against the wall by his mic stand. <laughs> he does it like he's been pinned to the wall. Uh, Mark, where can we find you on social media? You can find me at Mark Stockley and at Internet of Hens, both on Twitter. Have you got an Instagram yet? For I Internet don't of Hens? have an in- Instagram yet. And at the moment, you can find me at Naked Security as well. Yeah, you can. Matt? I'm going to register at Internet of Hens on Instagram and then sell it back to you at an extortionate rate. That is an excellent idea. Yeah, pay you in it. sourdough. Yeah, pay me in sourdough. <laughs> deal. <laughs> Matt, where are you? I am at InfosecBody on Instagram and Twitter. Duck? At DuckBlog on Twitter I and plain at PDucklin on Instagram. And I'm at Anna Brading on Twitter. And we are, of course, at Naked Security on Twitter and Instagram. You can also find us on Facebook by searching Naked Security, where we do weekly Facebook Live videos chatting about the latest security topics. If you like the new podcast, please rate and review it. It helps other people to find us. You can tweet us at Naked Security with suggestions or questions for the podcast, or you can email us at tips at sophos.com. And until next time, stay stay secure. secure.